brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Prep Radio on time, on target. We have Andrew J. Polsky, or I know I could say Andy Polsky in studio, author of Elusive Victories, The American Presidency at War. Although you're not really out on the book tour promoting this because it came out in 2012, but it's a book that's extremely relevant today. Um, Andy earned his PhD from Princeton University, political science professor at Hunter College and Cooney's Graduate Center, also authored The Rise of the Therapeutic State. And this book, although, as I said, from 2012, very relevant today. Yeah, that in some ways that's unfortunate because it just means yeah. that the wars I was writing about in 2012 are still going on. Yeah, I mean, it, it's incredibly important. And I, I think maybe that's where we should focus on today is the global war on terror, because you chose a number of presidents, American presidents, who were serving during times of war, going back to Abraham Lincoln, but you also profiled George W. Bush and Barack Obama's administration. Right. And, but then the book came out before the Donald Trump administration. So we, if you're willing, we'd talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, that's as good a place to start as any. Sure. Um, so, I mean, do you want to tell us first off you know, what the, the thrust of, of your book, Elusive sure. Victories, is? Sure. Well, the book, the book emerged after the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. Um, I'm a political scientist. I've been teaching about the presidency and political parties it turned out people in political science hadn't were not writing about wartime presidents, and there we were thrust into the middle of a war. So I began to do research and writing on it. And I came at it originally from what I would call a traditional liberal skepticism about presidents and war powers, which is that going back to Vietnam, uh, there have been people who wrote then, and uh, this was the general view that presidents had too many war powers, that they could get America into conflicts and then make it impossible for Congress to get us out of conflicts. Um, this was Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s thesis in the Imperial Presidency, and he traced all of the ways in which the powers of presidents have increased over time to get the country into military conflicts. Okay. Um, but then, as I looked more closely at it, I came to see how actually how little power presidents have to determine the outcomes of conflicts. And in fact, the more powerful we make them in terms of having a large standing military that they can deploy anywhere in the world and have in modern times done that, uh, the worse the results have been in military conflicts. At Viet in Vietnam is an example. Um, Iraq was an example, emerging as an example at the time. So something was going on there where these supposedly all-powerful presidents found themselves, um, I would use this, and they weren't muscular, they became muscle-bound. They were actually not able to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. And that was really the start of where, the, where, I, where I was when I, took, when I took on the book project to try and figure out some of these puzzles about the relationship between power and 
accomplishment or lack of accomplishment. Listening to your skepticism, it sounds a little bit like the writings of uh, John Mearsheimer or Stephen Walt, who express a lot of skepticism about what the U.S. government can realistically accomplish in these overseas conflicts. I think that uh, the Iraq war is a really good example. George W. Bush essentially decides he can take American military power anywhere he wants to. Um, There's no competing superpower in the early 2000s. There's no real restraint on what he can do. And the 9-11 attack created these very permissive circumstances where arguing that the war on terror would take us anywhere that there were terrorists (laughs) meant that he could pretty much go with the U.S. military where he wanted to. And if it was uh, Afghanistan, fine. But Afghanistan wasn't a a good setting to make a demonstration of what American power could accomplish. Even if you rebuilt Afghanistan, it was in an out-of-the-way place. Iraq, middle the, in the center of the Middle East, a strategically vital area. My goodness, if you can turn Iraq into a functioning liberal democracy, the consequences across the Middle East would be enormous. That's a very bold ambition to have at the start of a conflict, very unrealistic, in fact. But that was where George Bush envisioned us going in 2003. Um, so there's the, the lack of constraint um, and the, the belief that you could take us um, and do with American power just about anything you wanted to was a characteristic of the Bush administration in its early phase. We've come a long way since then, I think, even though we're still embroiled in these conflicts. Over time, the goals of what we hope to accomplish, whether it was Afghanistan, Iraq, or any place else, have become much more modest um, in reaction to our failure to achieve many of the things we thought we might achieve in 2003. Do you think the, uh, I wanted to ask you about the AUMF, the authorization for the use of military force that came around after 9-11. Do you see that as a, just a massive abuse or potential abuse of presidential power or or something that's inherently dangerous? We've had open-ended congressional resolutions that have pitched us into, that have allowed or empowered presidents to go into conflicts. Presidents don't actually necessarily need them. Mm -hmm. I mean, Harry Truman didn't get a declaration when he went into Korea. He invoked the United Nations police powers and said that was sufficient. But what Harry Truman taught presidents was it's foolish to go into a military conflict without Congress being behind you, because if things don't go well, you're out on your own. All right. Mm -hmm. They don't own the war. You own the war. So no one wants to make the Truman mistake. Lyndon Johnson used the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. Again, that's an open-ended invitation for to expand American military operations into Vietnam, um, and he used that. So when Cong- And Congress, in 2002, when the resolution authorizing force was adopted by Congress, was in a t- terrible position to say no. You have... still just a year behind you. It's in everybody's memory. And then you have Democrats in 2002 running for re-election, afraid of being soft on terrorism. Any of them who were contemplating running for the presidency in 2004 wanted to be on record as being strong on terrorism. So you have the John Kerry's and the Hillary Clinton's of the world in the Senate voting for this resolution. They soon feel that the war is going badly and want to take an opposition position, but then they're subject to the, to the criticism that they're changing their minds just because things are a little bit tough. Um, I don't fault George. I think what George Bush did, George W. Bush did in 2002 was shrewd. I think he wanted to get the country behind him. His father had done so in the 
Gulf War, War but by a much by a very narrow margin, um, it, it, his his resolution to authorize to support the use of force in Congress passed by just a few votes. The, the many many people in Congress, many Democrats in particular, wanted to give sanctions more time. Bush forty three wanted a wider mandate, and a and he took advantage of the timing to do that. Congress is not an effective restraint on presidents when they are about to send the United States <laughs> into a military conflict. It just, it isn't, um, and that's that's not going to work very well in the future. Um, I think when Obama talked about getting a resolution to go into Syria, um, what he was really hoping was that the lack of congressional enthusiasm would give him an excuse not to go into a conflict he didn't want they to They even into. tried to outsource it to the Brits at first, didn't they? Where they were trying to see if the House of Parliament would, would uh, authorize some sort of I military... I don't recall the specifics. You may be right about that. Yeah. Uh, and then I, was, uh, I think it failed there, and then I think partially as a result it failed here. Um, yeah, but yeah. Obama, of course, came in and he campaigned on this idea that Iraq was the bad war and Afghanistan was the good war, and he was going to get us out of Iraq, which he did. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? And I, I think, we, of course, we have hindsight now. And I, and I was deployed to Iraq in 2009 oh. with special forces when we were the, the mandate was to wind things down to transition authority over to the Iraqis. And um, you know, people like me could look around and quite easily see like that they're not ready. Like this, this the institutions of government aren't there. The corruption is endemic. It, it's going to be horrendous. Um, but there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the junior officers to send up false reports, making things seem much more rosier than they were. Yeah, echoes of Vietnam. Yeah, when yeah, the, yeah. When the body counts got inflated as they went up the chain of command, so by the time information got to Westmoreland, it really did seem to mean that the communists were being killed more quickly than they were being, and then they could be replaced. Um, and that was a very corrupt, a, re- a remarkably corrupt system. Um, but this is a fact of organization life. I think if the people mm-hmm. above you say they want, they want, re- they want, want a particular kind of result. Yeah. yeah, you want to give them what they want. Um, so Obama comes in, and I think a- any Democrat coming into the White House in 2009 is going to find a way to extricate the United States from the Iraq War. It is deeply unpopular. It it cost George Bush. Um, public support so that by 2006, the Democrats have control of Congress. By 2009, aided by the, aided by the fiscal collapse in 2008, they, they win the White House. But if it's, if it's Hillary Clinton, she finds a way out. If it's Barack Obama, he finds a way out. Now, his particular way of campaigning, as you point out, Iraq was, is, he calls it the war of choice, mm-hmm. Afghanistan, the war of necessity. Afghanistan is where 9-11 attacks were planned and launched. Uh, the Taliban is coming back in Afghanistan. We can't afford to have the Taliban come back because that, that's an invitation for al-Qaeda to come back in Afghanistan. Um, the war in Afghanistan has gone badly for the past two or three years. The government has, control has weakened. So Obama depicts that as a war of necessity. That gives him... Um, and his victory gives him the, the, the status to extricate the United States from the war in, Af- in Iran, uh, Iraq. Sorry. But it also commits him. He's got to figure out a way to win in Afghanistan or to, you know, to fight that war of necessity. So he's unlike someone like Richard Nixon in 1969 who gets elected promising peace with honor, which could mean almost anything. <laughs> <laughs> right. The only thing you can't do with pe- when you promise peace with, with honor, you cannot withdraw un- unilaterally, and you cannot 
um, escalate substantially. But pretty much anything else is on the table, which is the way Richard Nixon wanted it. With Obama, his hands are tied. He's got to prevail in some way in Afghanistan. He quickly realizes that's not practical. Um, the United States, he's not prepared to make a 10-year commitment to counterinsurgency. Um, but he can't allow the government to collapse. He starts slipping into decisions that push him in a particular way. Nation building is very unpopular. It's an unpopular idea. Right. But, the, but he needs to buy time. There's an election in Afghanistan in 2009. It's six months after his, he comes into the White House. He's warned by the military. The government in Afghanistan is on the verge of collapse. The elections that are supposed to be held may not come off if the United States doesn't um, provide greater stability. So he initially agrees to a very modest troop increase in Afghanistan. Then he's doing a strategic review. And strategic reviews by presidents in wars that aren't going well um, almost always take There's a kind of form that they take, which is the military gives president three options. Um, One option is to withdraw, de-escalate, wind down the war. Um, The other one is to escalate dramatically. And the third one in the middle is to do more of what you're doing, maybe with a few more troops. It's superficially always the one that seems the most reasonable. (laughs) So one one thing I would say to a president, beware of the three-option approach when when you're talking to your advisors, because it almost always will turn out to be the case that only the one in the middle seems to make sense. Now, in in the case of Afghanistan, um, Obama, to his credit, encouraged Joe Biden, then vice vice president, who favored a counterterrorism mm-hmm. approach, to argue strongly for that approach. Um, he, even though other advisors didn't agree with Biden, he wanted to make sure that was out on the table. The historical parallel that was in Obama's mind was Lyndon Johnson coming into the Vietnam situation in 1964 and 1965, considering whether to involve the United States more deeply. And Obama knew from his readings that um, Johnson hadn't had a broad spectrum of views um, and that nobody with sufficient stature who was opposed to escalation was really in the room. There was um, George Ball, who was a, an undersecretary of state, who argued that Vietnam was a road to nowhere for the United States, that it couldn't prevail. It was a, the wrong war to fight in the wrong place. And, and Johnson went through a kind of ritual argument with George Ball. Every time they talked about sending a few more troops or increasing the bombing campaign, George Ball would say this is a mistake, and Lyndon Johnson would would say you make some good points, and then somebody else in the room, McGeorge Bundy or somebody else, would say, but we can't allow the communists to win here. This is a critical part of our of our international strategy. If they win here, they'll they'll go on from here to X place or Y place. We can't we can't afford to lose. And Johnson would eventually say, I don't like this war, but you're right. I really have no choice but to fight it. Uh, and and Obama didn't want to have that kind of debate, so he wanted to have a serious argument about it. Now, he, Obama was wrong about one thing. Um, in 2009, when Obama comes, becomes president, it's not in any way analogous to Lyndon Johnson in 1964. That's the start of the escalation. Obama's coming in at the end of the war. It's going to have to be the end of the war. In a sense, it's been going on too long, and major escalation is not on the table. Nobody wants it. American interests don't require it. So he's thinking 1964. Probably he should have been thinking 1973. You know, how do you get out of this without it all going south? Obama decides on a surge like the surge in Iraq, except it's different in the sense that 
Um, it's he com- he says right away it's not going to last as long. We're going to get the- we're not going to put as many troops in, but we're going to get them in there quicker, and then we're going to get them out. Oh, and by the way, as he said when he announced the policy in 2009, oh, we're not really trying to win this war anymore. All we're trying to do is degrade the Taliban. Um, so if you want to go back to the Vietnam analogy, it's 1973 or 72 or 73 when the United States is trying to get out. And we don't want the government to collapse right after we leave because that would be embarrassing to us, as Kissinger right. and, and Nixon said at the time. We just want a decent interval. We know that the Saigon <laughs> government is going to collapse. We just don't want it to happen while we're still in the Not White House. Watch. Pretty much. So but now Obama hoped for a little better than that. But at th- this point rings true even today, which is – as soon as you make it clear you are leaving, the external power makes clear that it's leaving, the local actors know it, and you lose all leverage. This was Trump's fatal mistake, if you will, when he announced withdrawal from both Syria and Afghanistan. Okay, we're leaving now, so why would any of the other players pay attention to us? We've just, we've just, given a, we've just said we're on our way out. You don't need to. And I think what people around Trump have said now in talking about Afghanistan, for example, is um, we can't afford to pull out precipitously precisely because we will lose any leverage we have in, ter- in determining what happens politically and militarily after we go. I mean, there, there seems something so vain about the notion of we have to stay at war because otherwise our president will be embarrassed. I mean, I understand there's national prestige on the line, but that sounds like a horrible. I mean, I think Obama said about uh, launching an attack on Syria because the think tanks would tell him it's about credibility. You have to you have to stand by your red line. And he said something like bombing a country for credibility is like the dumbest reason to bomb people. Um, given that Obama had put his credibility on the line, unfortunately, when he when he essentially yeah. drew that line and yeah. said, you know, chemical gas is the chemical warfare is the thing that I won't allow. You, you don't draw lines in the sand <laughs> if, yeah, you're unless you're really prepared to, to to live up to them. And it, and boxing yourself in um, is is something that's going to happen in wartime anyway. Don't. Don't enable it. Don't don't make it happen faster. Um, the one so the one theme I would point out in the book that I that I stress in looking at some of the debates about presidential war powers and how presidents ought to lead countries is that any president is going to lose his freedom of action over the course of a war. The smartest thing he can do, or she can do, assuming it's a woman in the White House is to try and preserve that freedom of action for as long as possible so that you can change course in certain ways when you need to. And are, in generally speaking, the best wartime presidents, I'll go back to Abraham Lincoln of the presidents I looked at, the most effective ones are the ones who managed to some extent to safeguard their freedom of action for the longest possible time. It can't be sustained indefinitely. The, the choices you make are going to hamper, hamper, will hamper you. And even terrific, I mean, very capable wartime presidents like Franklin Roosevelt made lots of mistakes that compromised their freedom of action as they went along. I'm also interested in how I, I think it happened with Obama and also with George W. Bush that they got stung. And I, I believe it was in Cheney, maybe Cheney's memoir, where he talks about how he was pushing for military action in Syria during the the, the George W. Bush administration, and um, everyone's like, "No, no, this is after Iraq." They were like, "No, no, we're not doing that again." And then, um, and what we talked about with uh, Obama um, being very resistant about Syria, and um, 
shrewdly not escalating the situation in Ukraine. Um, it seems like they maybe both of them, both of these presidents got stung early on and they began to express some of that skepticism we had talked about. Uh, I think they both they both definitely got got stung. I think some of them some were were slower to come to skepticism than others. Um, if I look at look at Obama and Syria, even now, um, what what do you learn from this this episode? There are no good choices. Right. What, what was Obama? What could Obama have done in 2013 that would have been the right choice when the Syria is falling apart? The government is waging war on its people. Um, the Soviets are beginning to poke their nose. The Russians are beginning to poke their noses in. Um, I guess I, I call them the Soviets because they're back to being so much <laughs> like the Soviets in their behavior. <laughs> old habits die hard. <clears throat> the Russians are, are, are interfering. He's apparently used chemical weapons on, on his own people. So what's the good choice here? Well, if you intervene, you're in another war that is as unpromising as as Iraq was. Um, you You have... Um, ISIS on the ground there, expanding its its territory. You can you take them on as another military cha- challenge, but you've already committed U.S. forces in Afghanistan pretty much indefinitely and hoping to get out of that. You just got the United States out of Iraq. You have a, a domestic agenda that you want to pursue. And here's this Syrian conflict that's presenting itself with essentially no allies or partners on the ground. Yeah. Um, you know, the... the feeble attempts by the CIA and others to create a pro-Western military was kind of in laughable. Syria. Yeah. It, it didn't work. It hasn't worked. All right? It didn't work then. <clears throat> no allies on the ground. Um, so going in um, with no clear target, no, no strategy, essentially, you're going re- to replace um, the Syrian regime with what? So there's no, there's no good choice there. But you stay out, and what happens? ISIS expands. Um, it sets up its caliphate. Uh, the government ally- in Syria allies itself closely with Russia. Russian influences, influence grows. Frankly, in some situations, there are only bad choices for American presidents. You try and figure out the least bad one. I'm not convinced that Obama picked, didn't pick the least bad one. It may have been because we don't know what have ha- would have happened. It may if have been the best in. one. Yeah. Best, best option. Be- the best of just a, a poor set of choices. Yeah. And that's sometimes what presidents deal with. And in the end, I mean, we ended up going with covert action, special operations, and airstrikes, which, interestingly, the American public seems very comfortable with. <clears throat> yeah, almost no casualties. Yeah, it seems like it doesn't really bother, like, we don't really regard that as war. No, there seems to be, there's very little outcry over the bombing in Yemen right now, um, which is done with, has been done with American support. Um, there's no outcry over drone strikes. Um, if light, the light footprint of, of special forces of various kinds, uh, coupled with airstrikes, coupled with training missions of certain kinds, um, seem to be the, the level of imperial expansionist <laughs> practice that the American public is perfectly happy to, happy to live with. You know, when the British Empire was at its peak, British units would be sent all around the world, and they'd fight various wars against Afghans or Zulus or others. And the British public was perfectly acceptable because it was a professional military. They were volunteers, long-service volunteers, um, no conscription. 
Um, the, the soldiers were considered to be on the fringe of British society. Nobody worried. <laughs> the only thing, if people worried if there was an embarrassing defeat, which the British had their share of, but otherwise it didn't seem to particularly concern the public. Um, and we've never had an imperial mindset like that, but we've now come to something which I think is closer to that than we've had in the past. The professional soldiers who are willing to go out and be deployed um, in relatively small units with few casualties, this is something that the American people seem prepared to live with. It's getting very little discussion now in the political campaign that we're about to start. It's getting very little discussion um, in general, in, in, in public. And the only time you get a discussion is if the president abruptly decides enough of this and talks about leaving, and then people tell him why he can't do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. That or once in a <clears throat> while when, um, you know, four soldiers get killed by a suicide bomber in Syria or, you know, four soldiers get killed in an ambush in right. Niger. That's right. Suddenly everyone's like, whoa, whoa, why do why do we have people that, what's going on here? You can't do that, you know? But that's the only time when things go really bad. But I mean, segueing from that, I wanted to, um, of course, ask about what's happened since you wrote this book with President Trump, because he ran on, you know, his campaign was, as we were talking about before we got started, we're going to be doing so much winning, we're going to be sick of winning. (laughs) Uh, We're uh, we're going to get out of Syria, we're going to get out of all these protracted conflicts in the Middle East. And um, even somebody as bombastic as President Trump, who doesn't really seem to care much what the political establishment thinks of him, has been unable to extricate us from the global war on terror. Even during the debates, uh, blaming Jeb Bush, his brother, for 9-11 was pretty outrageous. Remember that? I, th- there were a number of things that stand out in the campaign <laughs> as outrageous things, statements. Yeah. We, could, we could spend a long time making a list. He, made, he, he came into that campaign, and he knew who his public was. Um, his, and his public um, generally... Um, the, po- the populist piece of the public were people, um, Midwestern, Rust Belt, working class Americans, predominantly white, um, dismissed by both par- having getting having little voice in either party. And he understood that that's actually um, the part of the uh, an important part of the population that sent its sons and daughters off to these yeah. wars. The, the irony of it, as you've said before, Jack, too, is like that's completely not who he is. He is a New York elitist. Oh, of course. Yeah. That, but that, I mean, <laughs> you, a lot of, there are a lot of faux populists out there. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm, I'm, the fact is he had, a, he had a public and that public was frustrated, had many frustrations. And one of the frustrations was an endless war that nobody could figure out how to win. Um, so what do you say to that public? You say, first, you're gonna, we're going to win. You're going to get tired of winning. Um, that's not actually a policy statement. It's, a, it's actually an echo of frustration. That's all yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's a frustration statement. Um, so it, it, it hit a chord with, with the public. But then he also said we'd been involved in this, these long, pointless wars trying to do nation building in parts of the world where nation building would be difficult or impossible. Enough of that. Right, we're not. We're done. He, with he that. wasn't necessarily wrong on. No, no, he was. He was right, and uh, to his credit, because he hasn't delivered on a lot of his promises. This is one he's kept so far. Okay, he has not put the United States in the business of nation building. Um, he has engaged in counterterrorism, and then he has. And and so what he has been looking to do is to find a way to eventually extricate the United States from these wars, without a lot of good options. 
So if you think about what do you do when you're trying to get out of Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan? Um, on the one hand, you've got people whispering in your ear, um, we can't leave. Okay, that it would it would be devastating to the region if we left. American credibility would be on the line. But as I pointed out, you also <clears throat> you lose your leverage. Essentially, once the locals know you're leaving, they'll they're going to they're going to they're going to worry about their own interests and and pay very little attention to you. So you and so if you don't want to pull out precipitously, what are you going to do? Um, well, if you you stay in. I mean, you continue to keep this this low, this limited footprint um, with few casualties, a policy that can be sustained largely indefinitely. And it has one advantage that I can see, which it does give you leverage when it comes to peace talks in the region. All right, you're you're basically signaling we're here to stay. We, we can we can keep doing this for as long as we want to. We got plenty of money to do it. It doesn't cost us that much. Um, the American public doesn't care about it. So it won't do any good to try to target the American public if you're opposed to this. They're not paying attention. They've checked. They've checked out essentially, um, which for many, which in some circumstances is a real is a real problem, but in others it can be an advantage. <clears throat> so we can keep doing this forever, more or less. Um, so Trump doesn't know how to get out, and on, and then at the same time he's probably got people whispering in his ears, mm, Venezuela. <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of the uh, the sort of like pump fake that he did in, in regards to Syria and, and making this unilateral decision? We're pulling out, we're getting out, and then within what was it like three or four weeks? Eh, we're going to stay, and then and then that CBS interview. We're going to stay in Iraq. We're going to stay in Syria to watch Iran. Um, that's an interesting twist about how you're going to watch Iran. Um, but leave that be that as it may. So presidents have processes, or they don't, actually. <laughs> um, most presidents have processes. And the processes have their good side, which is that they, if they work well, they give you a pretty thorough opportunity to look at the advantages and the costs of any course of action. Um, you know what, if you have a, a serious debate about es escalating in Vietnam, and your Joint Chiefs of Staff tell you you should do it this way, and you should um, call up the reserves, at least you know what the military thinks about this, and your political people are telling you another thing, and you can sort it all out. There's a process there. Barack Obama, and considering his options in Afghanistan, has a very good process, as these things go, for debating the alternatives. Do you really want to send in 80,000 troops? Do you want to send in 30 or 40,000? Do you want Joe Biden's counterterrorism? The arguments are hashed out, and they're considered seriously by people with backgrounds in the field. Um, you may get a lot of conventional wisdom, but you'll probably get some different conventional wisdom. And at least you've given it some thought. Um, and I think typically the, re the result – I'm not saying the results are necessarily good, but at least you've heard from all of the players. Uh, so far as I can tell, Trump has no process. I, I don't know what – I mean, uh, people have, have, have implied that Putin suggested to him that he get out of Syria. Um, I, I have no idea whether that's true. I, but this, there was everyone seems to have been caught by surprise. When everybody's caught by surprise, you know there's no process. He just wakes up in the morning and is like, you know what? Pretty much. And so then the process comes in after the fact. Okay. Um, <laughs> now, I've said we're leaving, and now everybody's going to tell me why we can't do that. And I'm going to have to find a way to back down from what I said. 
Uh, and, and maybe it's going to be that I'll say we're staying in Syria because that's how we're going to keep Iran on its toes. And uh, I'll stay in Afghanistan because I know now there are some negotiations that are going on between the government and the Taliban and other parties. And uh, we don't want to alter, uh, we don't want to make a, a statement that we're leaving because um, we can't be sure that we'll be able to protect um, Afghanistan from having the Taliban come back into power and it becoming a haven for terrorists again. Kind of the basic things you would you would think a president would realize before he makes the announcement, but it's better that he he better that he step back and reconsider his position than out of some stubbornness yes. or rigidity say no I've said my position we're going to stick to it. Well, some Trump supporters would make the point that, or they they would feel that. These sorts of things that he says are strategic gambits, that it's a sort of stratagem that he's throwing out this bold move and then from there negotiating somewhere down to a middle position. I suppose eventually we'll have some evidence from inside the administration about what thought went on, but I don't see any of that. Um, <laughs> I, I think I, I don't see in, in Trump's general actions, I don't see a grand strategic vision that he's pursuing it and certainly not following it through systematically down to the level of a decision in Afghanistan. Then I think the next thing I, I wanted to ask you about that you, we mentioned briefly, in you had said that one thing Trump has followed through on is not getting us involved in more conflicts than we're already in. Um, but something I've been looking at recently is Iran. And, of course, he's been making some pretty uh, hellacious statements about Iran, uh, sometimes on social media. I, I, is this uh, more bluff and bluster it, or is it? Is there something? Is he signaling something we should be taking more seriously? Well, let's take. Let's go back in history to a polit, to a thinker um, whose words still resonate today, and that's Machiavelli. And Machiavelli's comment in The Prince to the effect that leaders don't change. They don't change because they feel that what put them in the position that they're in of leadership. What worked to get to that point will continue to work. Right, right. So if we look at Donald Trump, um, we might say, well, look at North Korea. His initial reaction, his initial approach to North Korea was a threatening one. Yes. Um, you know, he, fire and fury like the world has never seen. And you know, pushing us t toward the brink of war with North Korea to the point that it became quite scary before he backed down to some extent, and he had his conversation with the head of North Korea, the first conversation in which he announced that, like Neville Chamberlain, he had achieved peace for our time, complete denuclearization. Well, that didn't happen. No. Um, so we're, but, we're, but basically this notion of the possibility exists that he sees the bluster and the threat as a prelude to negotiation and softens up the other side because the other side becomes... Um, intimidated to some extent or fearful that this guy is just crazy enough to do it. Um, you may remember there was a crazy Nixon theory in Vietnam that the crazy Nixon idea was that Nixon would be threatening to unleash such violence on the North Vietnamese that they would be drawn back to the negotiating table. Um, and there are a couple of episodes in the Vietnam period that suggest that may have, that may have been the way Nixon was thinking. Um, the bombing, the secret bombing of Cambodia, for example. He knew he couldn't bomb North Vietnam, but he wanted to show he meant business. So he had B-52s dropping bombs right. in the jungles of Cambodia. Um, why, why he thought that, that that would work better than the bombing of North Vietnam had worked under Johnson was never really clear. 
but sometimes presidents, you know, think that gestures like that matter. So Trump may have a kind of, you know, I'll, the crazy Trump thesis would be that I'll I'll act de- reckless. I'll, I'll bring us to the precipice and then I'll back down. And the other side, having seen that I'm I mean business, will be serious about negotiating with me. Um, it hasn't worked with North Korea particularly well uh, so far. I mean, there's a real danger there, too, especially when you're playing with words, uh, exchanging barbs with another nuclear power. Oh, absolutely. Or with any power, I think there's a, yeah. there's a real danger um, because <clears throat> signaling in wartime and in war, potential war situations is always a difficult and dangerous activity to get, to get in. You are trying to send a message. You know what message you are trying to send but you don't know what the other side is receiving. And especially in the case of dictatorships, um, information passes badly um, up and down the chain. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily pass up and down very well in our society. <laughs> We're relatively open. But in dictatorships, it, it really doesn't um, move up and down well. And so whether the other side, whether you understand what the other side is thinking is very much open to question. And it's a very risky proposition, very risky, to assume that the other side will respond the way you think they will respond. Um, and this was, there's been a problem, there was a problem, for example, in Vietnam. Uh, during the Vietnam War, when we were bombing North Vietnam in 1965 and 66 and 67, there would be these bombing pauses. Um, and the bombing pauses were generally intended by the United States as an overture to the North Vietnamese to come to the peace table, to take, you know, to think again about their position and our position. Um, but there was no direct communication. So the messages were going through intermediaries and they often were garbled and sometimes they traveled very slowly. So there, were, there would be bombing halts and the United States would try to send a message and then it would resume bombing before the North Vietnamese had ever had a chance to receive the message, oh. much less respond. <laughs> so they would think, well, they're acting in bad faith. They, they, you know, they yeah. talk about a bombing halt, but they're bombing us again. All these signaling activities... Are, da- are, are have risks with them. And if you think you're communicating something to Tehran by threatening them um, or to Maduro in Venezuela by threatening him, you, you, better, you, you can't know that they are hearing the message the same way you think right. they should be hearing right. that message. Um, Saddam Hussein is a fascinating case if you look at the lead up to the war. Because he didn't believe we were coming. Well, you remember there was all the discussion of weapons of mass destruction, right? And we wanted to have proof there were no weapons of mass destruction, that he had destroyed all of his WMDs. Um, And we thought there's no way he would dare not to give us the right to do these inspections because we're his most dangerous enemy. Well, it turns out that in Saddam Hussein's eyes, we weren't the most dangerous enemy. His own people, his own generals (laughs) were were the most dangerous enemy. And his one trump card against them was their fear that he still had weapons of mass destruction. So he actually wanted them to – he wanted to create the uncertainty create for fear, his yeah. own people or for the Iranians next door that he still had chemical and biological weapons so that they wouldn't – he knew his, his conventional military had been drastically weakened and they couldn't really and, – and was incapable of defending him against a serious adversary. But if there were chemical weapons, that was a whole different story. So his understanding of who his enemies were was completely different from what the Bush administration <laughs> thought. Um, this, the, the lack of communication, the misunderstandings had a lot to do with the games that were played up to the beginning of, that comp, of, the, of the war in Iraq, in Iraq 
Um, and we have to be wary of this happening in any other potential conflict situation. There's a tremendous possibility of miscommunication and misunderstanding. Now, another one of President Trump's campaign promises, which you know he followed through on, was pulling us out of the Iran deal, which seems counterintuitive that it, you know that was a deal that curtailed Iran's progress towards a nuclear weapon, and we can argue the effectiveness of it, but surely it's better to have something in place than have nothing in place, uh, nothing constraining them. Why do you think... Trump went through with this, and what do you think he was trying to signal with it? I'm not sure. Um, I, I, like you, I read the the press. Um, I, I think Trump fancies himself, and we all know this, as the world's greatest deal maker. Um, he can make a better deal than anyone else can. Whether it's true or not is not the question. He thinks of himself that way. He attacked Obama's Iran deal. Mm-hmm. He thought it was a terrible deal. Um, he, if, if you look at the kinds of de- – he doesn't like halfway measures, okay? He, he wants big solutions. Um, so his big solution – he wants to assure that Iran cannot ever get a nuclear weapon. He wants to completely denuclearize North Korea. He wants, he wants the big thing. If it's not the big deal, if it's not the whole enchilada, it's not worth it in his eyes. He thinks – or he thinks he can get a better deal. And so he's prepared to rip up the paper in the pursuit of a better deal. Whether he can get one or not, time would tell. But in in general, there, as you point out, there's a risk. You've you've thrown away the deal that you had, um, and that you had made in 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 good faith. It doesn't matter whether Congress signs the treaty or not. As far as another country is concerned, if a president of the United States puts his name on the dotted line, that's the United States speaking. So the Iranians expect the the deal to be honored. The Europeans expect the deal to be honored, and now we're in a a weaker position because the Europeans have lifted many of their sanctions. Other countries are are prepared to deal with Iran, so our leverage is largely gone from that. But from what I can see so far, I don't see Donald Trump inclined to bring the United States into a military conflict. Um, it's, It's not his area of expertise. He has seen the results go bad. Whatever Donald Trump is, he is not a stupid man, um, and, and he is, although he's not a deep student of history, to say the least, he, he knows what the public reaction was to the Iraq war, and he doesn't want his legacy to be another war like the Iraq war, um, which utterly destroyed the Bush 43 presidency. He's not, he's not interested in that. So for him, it's about the bluster the talk, the grand bargain at the end that, sh- that seals his place in history and wins him the Nobel Prize. Um, and that's what he hopes to come away from these situations with, I think, at least based on the North Korea model. Is, is there a real problem with, um, because you studied these presidencies you know, in depth, it, it strikes me that there must be a problem that we work in these four-year political cycles, maybe eight years, you know, um, we make deals, we pull out of them, we topple these regimes, and then the next president comes in and almost wants to act like none of that happened. Um, you know, why would a why would a regime denuclearize when we've been in the business of regime change? I mean, that is like the one hedge. Like you know, the United States probably isn't going to you know invade your country if you have nuclear weapons. This the lesson that the North Koreans took 
from Libya. From Libya was exactly that. <laughs> if, if Gaddafi had had nuclear weapons, he'd still be in power. There's no way we're going to allow ourselves to be, to, to be put in the position where an external country can come in, join with our own people, who we don't trust, uh, and bomb us and destroy our own military um, and I end, you know, and we end up as the leaders of this country being dragged by the people and they would ditch and being beaten to death. That's not what the North Koreans want. Um, what Trump tried to do in the most recent negotiation in Hanoi, um, which was an interesting location, that he walked out of. Um, yeah, but he did. He did just walk out of that. That is correct. Um, and we, it'll be a while before we fully understand why that yeah, is. That's yeah. literally today's headline. But he, what he tried to do was to suggest that Vietnam was an alternative model for the North Koreans. Um, and here's the argument. The United States, you know, a generation ago fought a war in Korea. A, a little, another generation essentially fought a war in Vietnam. We were adversaries. Um, in each case, 50,000 Americans give, give their lives. Um, in the end... Um, the United States turns out to be able to be a, a friend, a warm friend of the Vietnamese, open up strong relationships with Vietnam, become Vietnam's um, main export um, recipient. Uh, and our relations are so strong with the Vietnamese that they now regard us as one of the – as an ally against Chinese domination. Right. Um, so there's that path. Um that that we might suggest for the North Koreans, or there's the one of continuing belligerence, poverty, etc. Um, can you persuade the North Koreans that there is a Vietnam-like path to um, reunification? To, to well, to reunification, yes, but also to economic development, prosperity, mm -hmm. and peace. And it's not clear that the that that you can. But I think it was an interesting gambit on Trump's part. I don't know whether. I don't know how much background there was to this. I don't know how much buildup there was. And that's one of the things about Trump being, Trump's diplomacy that's peculiar is that usually you have summit meetings after the agreement's been made. <laughs> the experts write the agreements. They read the fine print. They hassle about the details. And then the leaders get together and celebrate when, when the deed is done. Trump's having has a different model of how to negotiate um, it initially showed promise in his first meeting with the North Koreans, and now it seems to be turning out the case that the North Koreans came away with a very different <laughs> understanding of that meeting and have no intention of actually denuclearizing the way Trump wants them to. And uh, do you think that the more we antagonize the Iranians the way we have, does that in incentivize them to pursue weapons of mass destruction as their, their hedge against potential American aggression? I mean, I know right now they're not. It, it appears that's what Gina Haspel and uh, Dan Coates, the DNI, testified to just, what, last month? Um, the Iranians would like to have peaceful relationships, relations with the United States. Um, they'd like to be recognized as an influential player in the Regional Middle East player, yeah. and respected as that. Um, there are lots of things that they want from the United States that they think that they can get from the United States. And they were willing to sign the deal in the first place because it was in their interest to do so. Um, they're still respecting it by all appearances because they hope that the United States, in a sense, comes around um, in it, you know, to a more sensible position. <laughs> I mean, they, may, they could be uh, countries. Country, you, you mentioned the four-year cycle. Other countries wait out 
our election cycle too. Yeah, China will wait a hundred years. They don't care. Right. They they can wait for another president. Um, <laughs> they waited for. I mean, the, in in the Vietnam War, the, the the Saigon government decided to outweigh Lyndon Johnson when his term was ending, expecting that Richard Nixon would give them a better deal. And that's one of the reasons. And and. And that's what Henry Kissinger essentially signaled to them. They'd get a better deal. So they scuttled a peace deal that was on the table in 1972. Then it turned out they shortly, they learned soon thereafter that Nixon also had every intention of withdrawing (laughs) from Vietnam. Um, So they gained, they didn't gain very much except a little time by doing that. So the Iranians could be waiting for another president. Um, You know, the North Koreans may decide to wait for another president. Yes, everybody can, our electoral cycle is regular and and you hope for the hope for the best. Um, I will say that if you let's take the first case in the book, Abraham Lincoln, um, the Confederacy in 1864, its strategy was playing for time, so that the Northern public would get frustrated, and elect a Democrat, George McClellan, who announced he would make peace with the South essentially as quickly as possible, recognizing the Confederacy. So if you're the South in 1864. And you're looking at Lincoln's reelection. You know that delivering um, defeats to the Union Army and essentially at least making making it seem to the Northern public that no progress was being made in the war after three plus years of fighting and the heaviest casualties of any American war in history, that would lead the Northern public to decide they wanted a peace candidate, and that's what the South was playing for in 1864. So. With, with rare exception, um, in World War II, it wouldn't make a difference in 1944. The Allies were committed to unconditional surrender. The war was going to play out that way. But in other cases, 1972, Vietnam, um, the American public is fair game when it comes to other countries looking at how to fight their wars. Um, I mentioned there, there was a a book was written about 15 years ago, maybe not quite that long ago, by Rupert Smith, a British general, called War Among the People war amongst the people. And he argues this is about insurgencies and how basically wars today are not fought by recognized armies, but rather by irregular forces, the asymmetrical conflicts, see these irregular forces hiding among the people. They're hard to find. They're hard to separate. <clears throat> when you attack them, you cause large, large civilian casualties. Um, when they, they suffer defeats, they simply blend back into oh, the people. Oh, was this the book that said when a strong power fights a weaker power, they end up becoming weaker themselves? Um, a number of books have said that point. Smith's point is that the character of war changes, but we should also recognize when we talk about war among the people, that the people include the people of the United States. Although they're not directly in the line of fire, the public. they're very much a political target um, that the enemy understands and tries to influence. The North Vietnamese did this um, intentionally with during RPOWs. the Vietnam War. Yeah, with, yeah, well, even before that, they, they, they recognized that the American people um, could be made, could become war-weary in short order. Um, this is not why they launched the Tet Offensive. It was for them actually a side benefit of the Tet Offensive. <laughs> they lose militarily. They gain, they gain politically. But they realized that the American public can be made, can get war-weary, and if they drag the conflict out, eventually the American public will turn its back on the war. And it turned out that it, that Vietnamization, the process of turning the war over to the South Vietnamese and bringing American troops home, had the unintended effect of 
encouraging the American people to check out on the war so that it no longer mattered to them. You end the draft, you bring the troops home. It's not unlike the conflicts you describe now. We're still there training the Vietnamese. We're still there bombing. there's no price for the public. The casualties are going down. The public is losing interest. But as the public loses interest, it also stops caring about the outcome. So the fact that ultimately the South Vietnamese government will collapse means nothing to the American people. They've, they've checked out. And so it is in Iraq, you know, a generation later. In two, by 2008, the American people have checked out on the Iraq war. Do they care what happens in Iraq afterwards? No, they really don't. Get the troops home. The casualties go down. It's probably largely true in Afghanistan today. The American public doesn't care after a certain point that in the case of Afghanistan, there's an advantage in that because the administration can continue doing what it's doing without much public reaction to it. But in other cases, when the American public checks out, the president is left with no good (laughs) argument to make about why this matters to the United States. What's the American interest here? Um, like pulling us out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and things like this. I feel like the, the, the American public just isn't necessarily engaged wholesale in some well, of Well, certainly issues. not with something like the Trans-Pacific Partnership because very few people know what it is or what it would do. Um, the war, at least at one point, was, was graphic um, and important. And in the people. headline, yeah. Um, and presidents, what they also find is that their, their words matter less as time goes on. They've inflated the significance <laughs> of the conflict. Um, in part because they have to justify going to war. But once they, inf- they inflate the significance of the conflict, it's hard for them to back down. And usually it's, it takes another president to get us out of that conflict. George W. Bush wasn't going to get us out of Iraq. His successor would. George W. Bush wasn't going to get us out of Afghanistan. Obama didn't get us out of Afghanistan. His successor may. Um, so in these conflicts, these long conflicts that go on, Lyndon Johnson didn't get us out of Vietnam. Richard Nixon did. The first, the president who launches the war and inflates its importance at the beginning into something like an existential conflict. <laughs> the survival of the United States is at stake here, it, by whatever tenuous logic it is. Okay, it's it, it's easy in the case of World War II, and relatively easy in the case of the Civil War to say the survival of the United States is, is at stake. What do you do when it isn't, though? Right. Do you, I mean, the survival of the United States is not at stake when Woodrow Wilson gets us into World War One. Um, which makes it really hard for Woodrow Wilson to make the case to get the United States into World War I. The survival of the United States is not at stake in Vietnam. You have this long, attenuated arguments about the dominoes, domino right? About you know, how, <laughs> you know, then the next week they're in Australia and the week after that they're in San Francisco. Or, you know, um, it's silly you know, images. The imagery still stays with us. And George W. Well, Bush. I, I remember Tony Blair uh, going on television and talking about how Iraq was going to launch like a chemical weapons attack on London. It could happen in hours. Like what? Well, and, and Condoleezza Rice, right? We don't want the, you know, the yellow cake to become a mushroom cloud. <laughs> you know, the, the inflated you know, threat of the uh, nuclear weapons. But to make the case for the sacrifice of going to war, you, some, you do inflate it. Right. You've got um, to mobilize those like jingoistic, yeah. nationalistic sentiments. And then the letdown when you're unsuccessful <clears throat> and the dawning gradual realization that, you know, we get right down to it. <laughs> there weren't any WMDs in, in Iraq. They went looking for them and they couldn't find them. Although, curiously, public opinion polls showed about two years after the war that there was a partisan split over whether or not there had been WMDs. I think there still are. 
Uh, that, that could very well be. I haven't looked at any recent surveys, but Republicans became more convinced that there had been <laughs> WMDs and Democrats became less convinced, which probably says more about the way our partisan yeah, mind habits yeah. work than anything else. We uh, have taken up almost an hour of your time already, but I, I guess maybe the the way to wrap this up, unless you have any you know concluding remarks or anything else about the book you wanted to talk about, I, I did want to ask you, do you see um, a potential roadmap or a potential way forward that the United States could begin to extricate itself from these many, many different conflicts we're in? Is it even possible? Or if we just created this war machine, the, the you know, so-called military-industrial complex, we can't even back away from it because our, our culture is predicated upon it. You have to rely essentially on the good judgment and self-restraint of the president of the United States. So we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Especially currently. I mean. Well, I'll... Are we yes yes and no? I mean, I, it, when I say that, it's because the, pre, the war power, the military capacity, is at every president's disposal. And this is the big change between the pre-modern era, before World War II, and the present time. Because before World War II, you didn't have a military basically you could deploy immediately. There was any significance. You had to create armies when wars were about to happen. Um, Lincoln has to build an army from nothing in the Civil War. It changes in the late 19th century, beginning with the creation of a modern United States Navy, which projects us as a world power, and that means we're going to be more entangled in different parts of the world. And we started getting involved in colonialism and things and like that. And then after World War II, sorry, after World War II, the United States doesn't fully demobilize. Um, we, we maintain a large standing military on a, real, on a permanent basis. Um, we, we do some demobilization after World War II, but um, it's limited and very little after the Korean War. And so now we have a military that spends somewhere around 40% of all of the world's total expenditures on military forces. Um, so it's there. And it's not, it's not going where, anywhere. We're a superpower. We may, we're not quite the hegemonic power we were after the Soviet Union collapsed, um, but a uni- and essentially a, a superpower in, but that has that kind of hegemony uh, and wants to preserve it sees any disruption in the global order as a threat, no matter how far away it is, um, whether it's Venezuela or it's Afghanistan you name it, any potential, any war could potentially threaten that. So we are on our, on our guard. Um, all the time. All the time. S- with the military force, with the, the sense that our interests are at stake in any conflict around the world, um, potentially leads us to the situation where we would consider using force nowadays in, time, in ways that we never would have before World War II. So what stops you? It is the president's essentially restraint whether he's advised that way or whether he's inherently skeptical of military involvement, which is what Obama was, you, you're not going to uh, – only those presidents who are aware of the risks will be, will, will be careful, I think, about getting us into, into military conflicts. And I don't think in the, in the wars we've been fighting, there has been nearly enough attention to the risks that we take when we go into war. Um, we know that we can win the conventional phase. We know there aren't going to – and that's not going to take very long um, because no conventional force that we're potentially confronting can compete with the conventional force of the United States. So the early victory is right there. Um, Donald Rumsfeld was in, in one sense um, – 
smart about this because his view was we do kinetic warfare well. Okay, that's what we should be doing. The rest we should outsource. Right? Nation building, leave it to the French <laughs> or the Brits. But we should not do nation building. Now, of course, there, there's no way you can put that into practice. It's and a national Rumsfeld, style. Yeah. And, and Rumsfeld was a terrible Secretary of Defense because he he does win the kinetic phase of the war in Iraq and has no clue what to do afterward. He wa- afterwards, he wants to control it, but he doesn't know what to do with it. So the temptation to use force will be there because we do have overwhelming force. Getting in is easy. Presidents have lots of things they can do to get us into war and lots of ways they can fight those, choose to fight those wars in the early stage. That's not the problem. Okay? It's getting out and actually accomplishing what you want. That's, that's, the key, that's the key question. And you've got to be realistic about it. I, I and others have written about this. Essentially, before you go into a war, you ought to be thinking about what the political accompli- goal is. What's the, what's the peace-building part of it? What do you want to accomplish at the end? And then you have to work your way backwards from that to the point where you're going to get into the war. And, and think about each step as you work your way backwards in planning the kind of, milita- kind of military operation you want to have or whether it's smart to do it at all. And that's something that we have done really poorly and presidents have done poorly. They're very, they're capable of thinking about the first step. They're capable of imagining a big long-term goal in part to justify going to war, but they're not capable of connecting the two ends. None of them has been very good at connecting the two ends. Um, And and until a president does that, there's a real risk of getting into a conflict that leads to nowhere um, and and leaves us worse off than when we went in. I mean, I remember when we interviewed uh, Mark Boyat, who's a special forces colonel, and he was, I was asking him about how unpopular the, na- the notion of nation building is with many Americans. And he's like, well, okay, then we're going to be there forever. Like, you just have to understand, like, if we're not going to nation build, then what, are we just going to have troops in Iraq or Syria or wherever? They're going to stay there forever? You know, as you said, that we, we haven't connected the two ends. Did he have a suggestion? Um. I think he would suggest. Um, Didn't he have a specific thing? It was like two and a half generations. He, it was like he, we he did. There. He did. Um, but I, I, th- I think what he was talking about was we need to have in Afghanistan a fifty-year plan, and we need to have an understanding that when you deploy to Afghanistan for a year, you're not there to win the war in the year. You're there to just advance the plan a little bit, and yeah, it takes several generations. But that that seems like something that's unrealistic. For as much as I love Mark. Um, it seems like the American public doesn't have the um, patience or the stamina for a long-term campaign like that. I, so I have one comment on that, which is that I think there's a particular moment or, or and sometimes a short interval in a conflict where you could persuade Congress to make a long-term commitment to the security of another country or what I sometimes – what I would call the Korea solution, mm-hmm. right? We're still in Korea. Um, it's not cheap to be there. There hasn't been armed conflict since 1953, so we are basically we are two and a half generations. Small there. numbers of troops, right? Um, the threat is still there to some extent, and and that remains a concern. But but we certainly did nation building and economy building yes. very successfully in Korea. In Vietnam, um, I in, I make the argument in the book that there was a window of opportunity when Richard Nixon might have gotten Congress to sign on to 
a long-term commitment to the South Vietnamese government that would have kept American advisors there, um, American um, planes there to, to bomb if the North Vietnamese attacked. Then the North Vietnamese at that point had been crippled by losses in Tet and the year after Tet. Um, the American anti-war movement in 1969 had been set back by Nixon's success. Um, and so it, for probably six months between 1969 and 19, fall 69, early 1970, Nixon probably could have pushed through Congress at the peak of his popularity legislation that would have committed the United States to a long-term um, relationship with the Saigon government. He blew it because he invaded Cambodia and um, you know, revived the anti-war movement and the Democrats. So the, the window passed. I think there was a window in Afghanistan. Um, for a long-term security commitment, probably when Obama first came into office, he could have a re- he could have negotiated with Congress and had a long-term commitment that would have kept the American American presence there and American aid going. Um, but at this point, it's probably too late to, to do that. I think the American people don't feel strongly enough to make a significant commitment. So, if you're going, if you think you need to be there for a long time and you want to signal that to an adversary too, you have to know when the window is that you can get Congress to buy into it. It's, if, and if you do that, I think you can get a Korea-type solution in some of these conflicts. Is that one of the things where it would be a, a trade-off, like um, some of the troop caps that we've had in Syria and then in the past we had in like Honduras and places like that, where it's like you can deploy 100 troops or 500 troops or whatever, and, and that's the trade-off you make with Congress? It, it could take a variety of different forms. Um, I think the point, the point is you want at some point Congress to buy into the idea that we, we have a long-term commitment to this government um, and, to this, and to its survival, and it's important to American national security interests. Yeah, and you have to do that while people still care enough about the conflict, while you have enough political support as president to do that, while where anti-war opposition is not firmly against that uh, or isn't strong enough to stop you from doing that. There are a number of combinations here. Um, but presidents recognizing a window of opportunity is an important part of their leadership skill. Andy, this has been an awesome conversation. Uh, I'm so Earl. glad you Thanks. come in today. Because My pleasure. On the, we interview a lot of veterans, a lot of people with military expertise, but we typically talk more on the tactical level. And um, I, I think it's rare that we get into this sort of uh, high-level strategic uh, thought on that goes in into the, the decisions that are made to get us into war and, and get us out sometimes. Isn't there an expression, amateurs talk tactics, professional talks, professionals talk logistics, and academics talk politics? <laughs> the problem is that they don't understand each other. That's always the problem. Uh, yeah, that, I mean that 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 can be, and and um, <clears throat> one of the things I, I'm proud of about the book is that um, the people who read it and re- reviewed it have not not found flaws with the military analysis that's in the book. I mean, I'm, I, I I take seri- very seriously the the need to be accurate in all of what I say, um, and I've certainly read a lot of books by academics who get the tactics part wrong. So I paid attention to that too. Yeah. When war is all about details. The uh, the website is andrewpolsky.com. The book, once again, although it's not a new book, but hopefully our audience picks it up, is Elusive Victories, the American Presidency at War, covering everything from the early presidencies all the way up to George W. Bush. And uh, I should ask you as well, 
In the 90s, you authored a book called The Rise of the Therapeutic State. If people want to check that out, you want to give us a brief synopsis on... It's not. It's an academic book. It's not written for a general Got audience. You. Got this, you. I won't say this book is an easy or quick read, um, <laughs> but by comparison with that one, this one is the one I would direct people to. What is, what is The Rise of the Therapeutic State it, it's about, about, though? So, it's about social welfare programs. Got you. It's okay. A, and about the intrusiveness of social welfare programs and how they developed over time. Interesting. How do you, how do you like being a professor though at Hunter? <clears throat> um, I liked it very much. Um, at the moment, I've moved over into academic administration, but uh, this book wouldn't. I don't know that this book would exist. The, the elusive victories might not have been written if it weren't for my students at Hunter College. Um, the students at Hunter College asking questions. Well, they they started after the war began in Iraq. We had a teach-in at Hunter, and the students organized it and asked faculty in political science to talk about presidents at war, or talk about talk about the war. I talked about wartime presidential powers there, and then I, I began to include it in courses that I taught, and I taught even specifically courses on wartime presidential leadership. I had students, some of whom I name in the book in my acknowledgments, who worked with me on research. Um, so their curiosity about it inspired me to get deeply into this subject um, as an outgrowth of earlier work that I had done on the presidency. Um, I think Hunter College is an, an amazing public university with a remarkable set of students, and I'm proud to have spent my career there associated with them. Excellent. Well, this this has been great. As Jack said, it kind of switches it up from what we normally do, which we, we enjoy doing now and again. This kind of conversation, I think, is important to understand many of the other podcasts we've done with, uh, you know, we did one with uh, Mike Lampy the other day, yes. who was um, one of the, the, really the fathers of Air Force Special Operations, and he huh. was one of the guys on the ground at Desert One in Iran in 1980. We start to understand those things and how they happen and why they happen. I mean, that was the Carter administration. I don't, did you look at Operation Eagle Claw at all? No, no. no. Okay. But I, I will say also another factor that entered into my writing the book was that my son, as I mentioned before we went on there, my son uh, was going into the military, um, did ROTC going into the Army, uh, into the infantry in about um, the time I was writing the book. And uh, talking to him, talking to other ROTC cadets, his friends, um, I, I got, I became more interested, more aware of the seriousness of what they were prepared to do with their lives and more mindful even then of the heavy burden that a president should feel before committing uh, troops to the war. Um, at one point, right about the time the book was published, I also was invited um, uh, by uh, C- uh, Colonel uh, Ike Wilson to come up to West Point and talk to them, to cadets there about it. Um, and, uh, at one, and at another time when I was talking about the book, I, was, I, talk, I gave lectures based on the book a couple of times in Vietnam. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> talking, about the Viet- talking about the American War, as they call it, talking about the American <laughs> War um, <clears throat> on the Mekong River or at the U.S. consulate in Ho Chi Minh City is a very different experience from talking about uh, the war here in the United States. And um, interestingly, I was told there when I met some of the people and in, in, uh, intellectuals in Ho Chi Minh City when I was there, the the American War, courses on the American War are not taught by history departments in Vietnam. Taught by political departments? They are taught by the Department of Marxism-Leninism. Mm. 
So <laughs> it, it apparently is, t- is still considered too sensitive a subject um, to trust to, to history alone. Wow. Very interesting. The scars we leave. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wrapping things up here, uh, as I always let you guys know, we have some very interesting stuff going on here at Hurricane Group. Um, If you go to hurricane.media, you can see all of it. Uh, I'm going to tell you some things on the horizon right now, though. Be sure to check out Crate Club. We have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be, and gift options are available as well. The guys involved in Crate Club are doing an awesome job with putting together great gear, a lot of 100% custom products made for us, everything from sunglass cases to EDC bags and other manly products. It's a club for men, by men. You can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. Also, as a reminder for those listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel. That's our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country, everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and a whole lot more. Again, you can watch all this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership today for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Uh, Last thing I'm going to let you guys know about that we're really pushing very hard here is the News Rep Financial Report. This is exclusive information that you can act on today to secure a brighter future for tomorrow. The News Rep Financial Report can help you discover new investment strategies in the defense sector, defense industry stocks can be a lucrative investment if you buy at the right time. Our team of foreign policy, security, and military experts provide real-time intelligence for stocks based on global trends that affect financial markets in the national defense industry. By subscribing now, you'll get exclusive access to our industry expertise, the NewsRep Financial Newsletter Advantage, which is our team that offers unmatched defense industry familiarity and expertise, unbiased knowledge of geopolitical trends, full access to NewsRep's foreign policy, security, and financial intelligence platform, access to our team of experts and analysts. Just go to the FinRep tab that's right at the top of the NewsRep.com. Go to the NewsRep.com. Click on the FinRep tab at the top. If you're a member, you actually don't have access to this, so this is a separate thing that we're doing. And uh, people are loving it. So it's right there on the newsrep.com, the FinRep tab at the top. Sign up for that as well. And uh, speaking of like switching things up, next episode we're going to have a guy on that uh, is from a really interesting background, really, you know, outside of the media world, although he self published this book. And that's Captain Edward Black, who wrote True Stories of a Small Town Cop. We know we have a lot of people in the law enforcement community who listen. And uh, I think it's good to get that perspective because sometimes I and, and maybe you make some statements out of ignorance of, you know, we don't have that background. So I'm, uh, I'm fascinated by that because the, the big town cops, uh, they're covered quite well by big town newspapers. But rural America is it, it's like a, a black hole a lot of times as far as the media is concerned. So. I'm uh, I'm excited to hear what he has to say. Yeah, and th- and then on the horizon we have some other great guests. Mike Schlitz is going to come back on with us. It's, it's it's been a very long time since we've had yep. Mike on. 
Um, before I leave for Florida, I'd, I'd actually like to do possibly a show of just uh, Q&A. Uh, so if you guys want to send some emails to softrep.radio at softrep.com, I'll try to get to all those. Maybe do that show. It's just an idea I have. Um, I've gotten a lot of recent emails, though, that are extremely long. Keep it keep it concise to like one or two questions. This guy sent me like nine questions. I'm not going to get to that. So, yeah, if, it, if it's uh, sorry. Yeah. And uh, Andy is laughing at that. But, yeah, if it's just, you know, concise, we like to answer that stuff. So send it to softrep.radio at softrep.com. And then uh, before we did this interview, I was in here early and I interviewed Kristen Beck, who's been on the show plenty of times but who I've never met. We talked about a whole lot of stuff. We went 90 minutes, and I'm going to have that for when I leave uh, so it's not a best of. So be prepared to hear that one in March. Uh, Kristen Beck and myself, we went over a whole lot of things because Kristen happened to be in New York and was here with her dog, uh, Lily, and people outside were loving seeing, uh, you know, big service dog here. But we we got into some... we, We talked about drones... We talked about women in combat um, and, and just Kristen's career with several, you know, SEAL teams and records that, that Kristen broke. Yeah, so. I'm sorry I missed that one. Uh, How dare you? Yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, I, I've asked people about about her in the past, uh, times in the in the SEAL teams, and everyone's like, no. When Back when she was he, yeah. uh, good SEAL. Good oh, yeah. Well, yeah. if you listen to this uh, episode, you know, Gets into records that she broke on the shooting range and things like that, and you know, wow. it, it's pretty cool. Um, so maybe you'll want to listen back yeah, to that one. But it, it was um, it was interesting to to finally meet the person in person. Um, once again, it's uh, andrewpolsky dot com. Check out Elusive Victories. Anything else that, that you want to get to before we wrap this up? It, well, it probably doesn't serve my interest to say this, but um, there are a lot of. Uh, used copies available on Amazon <laughs> for a very for a very low price. And as author, I don't get any royalties, but as author right now, what I'd really like to have is people read the book. I mean, that, no, that's that's, great. that's pretty cool. That means you really stand behind, you know, the importance of what you're writing. Yeah. Any, uh, I, I think I asked this before we came in, but any further books on the horizon? Um, on the distant horizon, but we'll have to wait. Okay. okay. <laughs> Maybe we'll have you back in if it's thank in you. our wheelhouse. Sure, I, thanks. I thought this was a great one. Thanks. Uh, thanks for coming in. We all love having people in studio, and um, hopefully this audience enjoys it, because like we said, it's it's something very different, but as you said, ties into other episodes that we've done. Yeah. If you want to understand why the decisions were made to launch military operations that we talk about every day, I think you have to read about the, the strategic thought that goes into it. Well seven. Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.